you would take your Bibles, go to Luke chapter 2, if you were already in Philippians, I apologize, Luke chapter 2, we're going to take a break this week from Philippians, we've been going through that uh, since October, but Luke chapter 2, this morning, You know, some people refer to the day after Christmas as the worst day of the year. You know why? Because the next Christmas is the furthest away that it will ever be. Realize that? Some parents refer to it as the worst day of the year because half the toys you got for your kids are already broken, and they're playing with the box now, right? They've had more fun with the cardboard box. Could be the case. But I wonder, and we're going to talk about this a little bit today in the message, but I wonder, besides all that, what were the days like right after Jesus' birth? And we get a lot of information on the run-up to his birth and all the excitement going up to it. But what were the few days right after Jesus' birth like? What were they like for Mary and Joseph? You think about that. They had to be worn out from a long journey. They weren't in their own home. They didn't have any of the comforts that they could enjoy there. She delivered her baby in a stable, how long did they stay in that stable? The Bible doesn't tell us. And even though away in a manger says that Jesus didn't cry, he probably did. Because Mary and Joseph were brand new parents, first-time parents. They had no clue what they were doing, right? Those of you that are parents, you know that. You've been there first time. That first kid, it's you know, weird that he even survives. That's why second children are the best, by the way because parents make all their mistakes on the first one. The second one gets the good, and the third one, they don't care anymore. <laughs> that is more true than not. But here, but here, I was a second child, by the way. That's why I say that. My wife was as well. But you think about uh, Jesus and what happened there, and you know the pressure that was there for Mary and Joseph. They knew who that baby was, the Messiah, what added pressure would you put on yourself to raise the Messiah, to raise the Son of God? I mean, it had to sink in pretty quick. And, and you know, we asked those different questions, you know, what it would be like for raising the Messiah, what they did the few days after. And for the most part, the biblical narrative doesn't answer those questions for us. It picks up the story in Luke chapter 2, verse 21. After Jesus is born, it picks up the story on the eighth day. Let's look at verse 21. We'll read down through verse 24. It says, When eight days were accomplished for the circumcising of the child, his name was called Jesus, which was so named of the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the days of her purification, according to the law of Moses, were accomplished, they brought him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male that openeth the womb shall be called holy to the Lord, and to offer a sacrifice according to that which is said in the law of the Lord a pair of turtle doves, or two young pigeons. So on the eighth day, Jesus gets his official name at his circumcision, which would have been common cultural procedure at that time. Now, there was no doubt about what the name would be, was there? The angel had told Mary in Luke 2.31 that the baby's name would be Jesus. The angel told Joseph, Matthew 1.21, that the baby's name would be Jesus. You know, I wish naming a baby was that easy. We're still waiting for an angel to appear to tell us the name of our fourth one, by the way. It hasn't happened yet, but we'll see. 
but the name was obviously Jesus. Verse 22, it picks up about 40 days after Jesus' birth because it says the days of her purification according to the law of Moses were accomplished. According to Leviticus 12, that would have been a 40-day purification time period. And after that, they would have showed up to the temple with a lamb of one year and a pigeon or a dove to offer that sacrifice and to pre present that newborn child to the Lord. And you see that happening in verse 22, 23, and 24. But according to verse 24, Mary and Joseph did not offer a lamb. They offered a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Why? They were poor. And there was a provision in the Levitical law in Leviticus 12, I believe it's verse 6, where it says that if someone was poor, instead of offering a lamb and a dove or a pigeon, you could offer two doves or two pigeons. And I think that's something to note. Mary and Joseph were the poorer of society, and yet God works through them to accomplish salvation, to accomplish his will in the world. It reiterates, once again, the ability of God to work through anybody. You see that also at a good example with the shepherds. The shepherds were the lowly and the outcasts of society. And yet the announcement is made to them the night Christ was born, and they come and worship the king. Then you look at verse 25 and the verses following. Mary and Joseph are at the temple. They meet two people who are not mentioned anywhere else in Scripture. This is the only spot they are referenced, Simeon and Anna. And I want to look at these two people. These are going to be the first of four examples that I want to highlight today about people that worshipped Christ, the newborn king. And I hope through their examples, we can be encouraged and inspired in our worship of Christ as well. So let's look at Simeon first, verse 25 down through verse 35. It says, And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and the same man was just and devout waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Ghost was upon him. And it was revealed unto him by the Holy Ghost that he should not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came by the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him after the custom of the law, then took he him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now let thou thy servant depart in peace according to thy word. For mine eyes have seen thy salvation, which thou hast prepared before the face of all people, a light to lighten the Gentiles and the glory of thy people Israel. And Joseph and his mother marveled at those things which were spoken of him. And Simeon blessed them and said unto Mary his mother, Behold, this child is set for the fall and rising again of many in Israel, and for a sign which shall be spoken against. Yea, a sword shall pierce through thy own soul also, that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed." Here's this older gentleman named Simeon, and according to verse 26, it has been promised by the Holy Spirit to Simeon that he would not die until he had seen the promised Messiah. Think about that. Simeon has been told that you will not leave this earth until you lay eyes on the promised one. Now, Simeon, I don't know when that happened. The Bible doesn't tell us if that was like last week he was told that or if it was 40 years earlier. I don't know. But you must, you got to think about Simeon here. How many times must have he seen a baby at the temple or passed a baby on the street? And maybe he's getting a little hopeless. That's not the one. Oh, no, it's not that one. 
But then he comes to this day here in Luke chapter 2, and things were totally different. It says in verse 28 that he takes Jesus up in his arms, knowing he was the promised one, and he prophesies about this baby being salvation, being light, and being glory to all people. Well, think with me for a second. How did he know? How did he know? How many babies did he see during the course of his life come into the temple to be presented to the Lord, as was the custom? How did he know this one on that day? Well, it was obviously because Jesus looked different than every other baby. He had that heavenly glow about him, right, that we see in pictures. He's just kind of this light was shining. Or Mary had one of those saintly halos on, and so he knew that that was the one. No. How did he know then that this child was different? I'll show you something. This, is, this should be influential in our own worship of Christ as well. Look at verse 25, the very end, the very last phrase. The Holy Ghost was upon him. Look at verse 27, the very first phrase. And he came by the Spirit into the temple. How did he know that that was the child? Out of all the babies he would have seen, how did he know it was that one? The Holy Spirit guided him and revealed it to him. And this is an example of one of the works of the Holy Spirit. Because the same is true with us. The Holy Spirit guided Simeon to see that that baby on that day was the Christ. In John 16, 13, Jesus says that when the Holy Spirit is come, he will guide you into all truth. That's the promise he gives to us. And we can see the Holy Spirit doing that for Simeon here. Because Simeon could have been clue hunting, right? All the prophecies, okay, I got to put all the clues together. I got to match everything up and, and align this right and look at that baby. No, that's not it. No, maybe it's this. No, no, no. He could have done that, but I don't think he did because he was a man led by the Spirit. And we do that sometimes. We go clue hunting, don't we? Try to figure things out on our own. But yet Jesus has told us we can have all the evidence. We can have all the markers, all the tip-offs we can gather. But how ultimately do we know the truth? The Holy Spirit guides us into all truth. That is ultimately how we know the truth, the power of the Holy Spirit. You know, it was true at your salvation. You stand here today as a redeemed person before God. It was true at your salvation. Titus 3.5 says, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. It is the Spirit that brought us to salvation. The Holy Spirit, as it did for Simeon, he does for us as well. He leads our spirit to the truth. The Holy Spirit leads our spirit, small s, to the truth. We see a great example of this in Matthew 16. Jesus and his disciples are walking along. Remember, he asked the disciples, who do people say that I am? And they gave him all sorts of answers. Some people say you're this, some people say you're that. And then he draws it right to, a, right to them and he says, who do you say that I am? And Peter says that great phrase, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. It's a great statement. But then Jesus says to Peter, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father in heaven has revealed this to you. Did Peter know that because he put all the pieces together? He figured things out? Jesus said, no, it is only a work of God on your behalf that you're able to know that I am the truth. 
Then in the passage we read earlier in our scripture reading, John 4, 24, Jesus says to the woman at the well that God seeks those who worship him in spirit and in truth. Now in John 4, 24, that spirit there that he's talking about, we worship God in spirit and in truth. That's little s spirit. That's not the Holy Spirit. It's our spirit. So we are to worship him in spirit, referring to our spirit that rightly worships Christ. But think about how does our spirit rightly worship Christ? Only by the direction of the Holy Spirit. It is only by the direction of the Holy Spirit that our spirit rightly worships Christ. And this should teach us something because the location of our worship, the instrumentation of our worship, the, what's the word that's spoken, the, the position that we put ourselves in, does not ruin or guarantee our worship. Worship happens when our spirit is rightly directed by the Holy Spirit and is in right relationship with God. That's when worship happens. And we see this in Simeon. Look at verse 25. Behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. The same man was just and devout. He was also, it says, waiting for the consolation of Israel. Waiting for the consolation of Israel. Another way to say waiting for the Messiah or the Christ. It was a messianic title that referred to Jesus and what he would accomplish. He would accomplish consolation for Israel. And then the end of verse 25, we saw this earlier. It says the Holy Ghost was upon him. The Holy Spirit was upon him directing his spirit to worship Christ in holiness. And that's also how the Holy Spirit works in us. So what do we learn from Simeon about our worship? We learn this, that worship is guided by the Holy Spirit. He will guide us into truth to worship God rightly. Let's continue Luke 2. Look at verse 36. We see the second person here, Anna. Verse 36, and there was one Anna, a prophetess, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was of a great age and had lived with an husband seven years from her virginity. And she was a widow of about fourscore and four years, which departed not from the temple, but served God with fastings and prayers night and day. And she, coming in that instant, gave thanks likewise unto the Lord and spake of him to all them that looked for redemption in Israel." The second person we find here in Luke 2 is Anna, the prophetess. Married for seven years, but now she was an 84-year-old widow who probably lived at the temple and served the Lord there. And you kind of have to think in your mind's eye here because it doesn't fill in all the details, but it says she came in that instant, meaning when Simeon was interacting with Mary, Joseph, and Jesus. She came in that instant, so maybe she's there in the temple, and, and she sees Simeon, with the baby Jesus, maybe even overhears what he's saying about his eyes seeing the salvation of God, and she knew something was up. So she comes over, it says, to Christ, and in your mind's eye, you have to imagine this sweet little old lady picking up this baby boy and her heart filling with the hope, with, with all the fulfilled promises of God. For 84 years, she's been waiting for this moment the hope of God fulfilled. And you see what she does? Verse 38, coming in that instant, gave thanks likewise unto the Lord. She sees this child, Jesus, and she worships God. Herein lies one of the reasons that Christ came to earth, 
He came to earth to bring glory to the Father. Don't miss this. Jesus has not said one word yet in his earthly life, and he's already bringing glory to the Father. People are worshiping God. Christ is drawing people to the Father, and he hasn't said a word yet because the promises of God are fulfilled in Christ. We also see here this intra-Trinitarian worship that the Godhead enjoys because the Son, we see this in John 16 and 17, the Son brings glory to the Father. The Father brings glory to the Son. Jesus said when the Spirit comes, he will bring glory to the Son as well. The Godhead, the three persons of the Godhead all have a mutual desire to bring glory to one another. But notice also here, it's in verse 38. Notice what Anna does, what her worship of Christ causes her to do. Very end of verse 38. says, she gave thanks likewise unto the Lord and spake of him to all them that looked for redemption in Jerusalem. She spake of him to all them that looked for redemption in Jerusalem. Now picture this little old lady running as fast as her legs will take her. And she starts telling people, I've seen him. He's here. You're looking for redemption in Jerusalem. You're looking for redemption, the redemption of Israel. He's here. He's right over there. I've seen him for myself. I've held him in my arms. The promised one is here. Redemption has come. Peace on earth. Goodwill to men. He's here. He's come. We're not looking for it anymore in the future. He's here. Her worship of Christ, watch this, verse 38, her worship of Christ becomes the inspiration for her witness of Christ. It starts with worship. Her love and adoration of Christ so filled her up that it spills out of her and onto those around her. She couldn't help herself. She was so full of the glory of God and the worship of Christ that she had to tell other people that he's here. I recently read a book entitled Look and Live by singer and songwriter Matt Papa. And in the book, he has, there's a chapter titled Glory and Mission, and he says these words, Worship is the fuel of missions. Worship begins with a focus on some glory that has mesmerized us and culminates with the sharing of the glory that has satisfied us. Satisfied us excuse me. Now watch this phrase. He says, mission is really nothing but worship that tied its shoes. You see that? Mission is really nothing but worship that tied its shoes. In other words, it goes out and gets things done. The worship of God inspires us to put us on mission. And we see that in Anna. So filled up with the glory of God that she went as fast as she could to tell others. Say in Simeon, we saw that worship is guided by the Holy Spirit. Here with Anna, we see that worship fuels our mission. It fuels our mission. Now, if you would, still talking about the days after Jesus' birth, go to Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2. We see our third people, our group of people. Matthew chapter 2, the wise men. Now, the events, as we said, of Simeon and Anna there in Luke 2, they happen about 40 days after Jesus' birth. 
All right, so pretty soon after Jesus was born. But the arrival of the wise men probably occurs about two years later. Between a year and two years later. So go ahead and throw out all your nativity sets that have the wise men at them. All right, you got to get rid of all of those. I kid, it's okay. It's not the end of the world. People going home, throwing them out later today. But the wise men's worship, this is what I want you to see in chapter 2. The wise men's worship of Christ teaches us a great lesson about our own worship of Christ. I want you to see this. And for a moment, think of the wise men. They're pretty unknown. We don't know much about them. They show up all of a sudden. Here they are, Matthew chapter 2. We don't know anything about their background, their history, who they are. Probably kings, though. So I want you to think through some of the, the logistics of what we know of their journey. They were probably not kings, but they were met wise men or sages from Persia. Which means that their trip to Bethlehem would have been a journey of about a thousand miles. You got to be dedicated to something to take a journey of a thousand miles, even today. But think then a journey of a thousand miles. You don't think it up one day, run to the bank and get some gold, then hop a plane to Jerusalem and show up the next day and worship Christ. It's not how it worked. The journey alone would have taken months, but then think also the planning process that would have happened before the journey. So we're talking, talking months, maybe even a year or more prior. They're thinking through this worship of Christ. Now, now, given their wealth, their prestige, and we see that through the gifts that they gave, they probably did not travel alone. There would have been great expense to this trip. They sacrificed time, energy, resources, money, maybe even health to do one thing. One thing. It shows up in Matthew 2, verse 2. They say to Herod, where is he that is born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and are come to worship him. Verse 11. When they were come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him open their treasures, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. All this time, all these logistics of this journey, they put it all together for one purpose. Worship Christ, the newborn king. That's dedication. And there are some lessons that we can learn from their worship of Christ. What they put into their worship of Christ. Number one, here's something we can learn from them. Worship is active, not passive. Worship is active, not passive. Some people struggle with idol worship, I-D-O-L. Worship of idols, something besides God. Other people struggle with idol worship, I-D-L-E. Idol worship, lazy worship. We all know that to be true at different times in our lives, don't we? We don't put a whole lot of effort into what we do for God. Lazy worship or idol worship, I-D-L-E, is worship that costs us nothing and, and means nothing to us. You know, worship of Christ is not a passive event where we just show up at a worship event, plop down on a pew, and get our worship on. It doesn't, it doesn't happen that way. No, worship of Christ is a daily, minute-by-minute -minute endeavor that should cost us something. Every part of our lives is worship to Christ. 
Our service to one another is worship to Christ. Our witness for Christ is worship to Christ. Our work is worship to Christ. Our giving is worship to Christ. It's active. It's not passive. So we see that, first of all. Secondly, we see this in the wise men. We worship from who we are. We worship from who we are. What do I mean? The wise men were Gentiles. You realize that? They were not Jews. They were Gentiles from a long ways away. Because up to this point in the narrative of the nativity, it's very Jewish-centric. Mary, Joseph, Jesus, shepherds, everyone else involved, highly Jewish. But here we see entering into the scene this reach gets expanded a little bit. We have these Gentiles who are included in the worship of Christ. Aren't you glad for that? I'm glad for that. Because God allows not just the Jewish people, but Gentiles to worship Christ. Because you know what I can't do? I cannot change who I am. If I had to change who I am to become something in order to worship Christ, it wouldn't go very well for me. But God says, and we see that through the wise men, that God has made you who you are to worship him as a Gentile. Also, these, these wise men, they were rich men. We see that in the gifts that they gave. Now, earlier we said in Mary and Joseph, God works through the poor of society to accomplish his will. He does. You know who else he works through? the rich of society, to accomplish his will. God is not, not limited to one category or group of people. He works through all people. And however he has created you and made you, he has made you that way to worship him. You don't have to become something that you're not in order to worship Christ. He's also, this is, this is number three. Number one, worship is, not, is active, not passive. Two, we worship from who we are. Three, we worship from what God has given us. What did the wise men give to Jesus? Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. But you know something? The wise men's gifts to Christ were first gifts from God. We can only give to God what he has given us in the first place. So we worship him with what we, who we are made to be. We also worship him with what he has given us. James 1.17 says, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights. You or I, we have nothing that God has not given us. Therefore, when you, you can give nothing that God has not first given you. Whether I give God money, time, or talent, it's all things that he's first given to me. We give from what God has given to us. What do the wise men teach us about worship? To summarize it, put it in this phrase, worship is an active gift to God from whom he has made us and what he has given us. Worship is an active gift to God from whom he has made us and what he has given us. That's our worship to Christ. Now, our fourth person this morning, he also shows up in chapter two of Matthew. Not someone you would expect to see on a list of people that worship Christ. King Herod. King Herod, yet he teaches us a valuable lesson about worship. Matthew 2, verse 8. 
Herod saying to the wise men, it says, he sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search diligently for the young child. And when you have found him, bring me word again that I may come and worship him also. So Herod tells the wise men, hey, when you've located the new king, come back and tell me because I want to worship him too. Yeah, we know from the rest of the story what? Something was wrong with his worship. Something was a little off with Herod's worship. In fact, he does the exact opposite of worshiping Christ. He works to destroy Christ. Remember what he did in Bethlehem? All, all, the, all the, the baby boys, two years and under, killed. He worked to destroy Christ. This was deceitful worship of the highest degree. You say, well, what can we possibly learn from Herod's worship of Christ? It is this. You can't just say you worship Christ. What did he say he wanted to do? Worship Christ. What did he actually do? Nothing like worship. And I think we have a lot of people in the church at large today, even professing Christians, who say they worship Christ, but they don't even know Christ. Do you agree with that statement? They don't even know Christ. And in Matthew 15, 8, Jesus said that these are the people who draw near to me with their mouth, but their heart is far from me. They say all the right things. They look like worshipers even, but their heart is far from me. Going back to John chapter 4, verse 24, Jesus tells the woman at the well that God is seeking after those who worship him in spirit and in what? Truth. In truth. See, Herod did not worship God in truth. A lot of people today do not worship God in truth. People have always been good. They've been good people, but they don't know Christ. They've always gone to church, but they don't trust Christ. They've always been religious or even been baptized a few times, but they don't know Christ. And that is fake worship, and it is abominable in God's eyes. Paul tells Timothy, watch out for people like this. He says to true believers in 2 Timothy 3, 5, turn away from people who have a form of godliness, but they deny the power therein. Fake worship is deceptive and it's destructive. And you look at Herod, he had all the opportunities, didn't he? He was in Jerusalem, probably one of the more worshipful places in the world. He said the right words. He was in the right place, but that did not mean that he had right worship. Jesus said we must worship in spirit and in truth. The truth is what we see in scripture. The truth is knowing Christ. And may I say, if you do not trust Christ, if you say, I've been religious all my life, I, I, I've, I've been to church, I know all that there is to know, but I don't trust Christ. Today is the day of salvation. Would you come to him today? The Bible says, put your faith, your trust in Jesus Christ now. And in the quietness of, of wherever you are sitting, you ask God to forgive you of sin and you trust the sacrifice of Christ so that your worship might be right worship in spirit and in truth. I think Christmas songs do a great job. Christian Christmas songs do a great job for us in bringing our hearts to worship. 
We sang a couple of them this morning. Close out talking a couple, about a couple of these. Oh, come all ye faithful. Do you notice the words in that? Oh, come all ye faithful, joyful and triumphant. Oh, come ye, oh, come ye to Bethlehem. Oh, come and behold him, born the king of angels. Oh, come, let us adore him, Christ the Lord. What's it saying? Come, come and worship. It's exactly what the, the chorus, we sang it earlier today as well, angels from the realms of glory. Come and worship, come and worship. Worship Christ, the newborn king. And there's that song. We're going to sing the first verse here to close out our service. Angels we have heard on high. The author is actually unknown. Nobody knows who, who wrote this song, but probably written a while ago because the chorus is in Latin. So probably written when Latin was a little bit more prevalent. But the chorus, if you remember, it has that Gloria. Gloria. It goes on like forever. It's the, it's, it's, you know, the favorite song of kids because you don't even have to be on the right note and you're close to some note that's in there right? But the words, it's Gloria in excelsis Deo, the Latin phrase that means glory to God in the highest. Glory to God in the highest. It's the phrase the angel said that night to the shepherds. Glory to God in the highest. And I pray that the, the Christmas story, as we've looked at it today, with people like Simeon and Anna and the wise men, that we in all we do and that all, in all we say, we may worship Christ. May our worship always be glory to God in the highest. Let's pray.